Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to my guests about the five things they choose from any time in their life that they regard as significant enough to preserve in a time capsule, hence the title. Of course, what may be significant to them may appear trivial to others, and they can choose anything, a place, a person, an object, a particular time or event, even just a smell or feeling that they cherish. They pick four things that they love and would like to keep safe, but they also have to pick one thing that they regret or wish they could erase from their past. My guest in this episode is the actor, writer and comedian Melanie Hudson. Mel was part of the double act Hudson and Pepperdine with a previous guest of my time capsule, the lovely Vicky Pepperdine, with whom she starred in the appropriately named Hudson and Pepperdine show on BBC Radio 4. She also performed multiple roles in the classic Knowing Me, Knowing You with Alan Partridge, including his French co-host Nina Varnier. Mel was in The Catherine Tate Show, The Friday Night Armistice and The Armando Iannucci Show. She was in Smith & Jones, The Peter Principle with Jim Broadbent, The Merry White House Experience with David Baddiel and Hugh Dennis, People Like Us, Casualty, The Javone Prince Show and Lovesick, as well as the radio series Cabin Pressure with Roger Allen, Stephanie Cole and Benedict Cumberbatch, written by the brilliant John Finnemore, and Births, Deaths and Marriages with Russell Tovey. Mel has narrated a multitude of audiobooks, cartoons and video games, and quite a few adverts. She's recently written and produced her own short film, which we'll hear about in this episode. But is it one of the things she would like to put in her time capsule? Well, let's find out, shall we? Here is the delightful and very funny Mel Hudson. Okay. And now, there we are. You see, now I can hear myself as well as you. Lovely. It's a brilliant system that I've worked out. Fantastic. I'm wearing two sets of headphones because I've got you on the Zoom call on my iPad. Yeah. And I'm listening to that through 
a set of small, cheap in-ear headphones. Yes. And then to hear myself being recorded through my microphone, I, I've got these massive over-ear headphones. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm half woman, half headphone. <laughs> Do you know the BBC headphones? Across the band on the top, it has a soft thing. A comfort band. Yeah, if you swivel that, you can then turn the corners up and it looks like you've got ears. How lovely. Like sort of mm. Mickey Mouse headphones. Exactly. I've yeah. never been party to that, right? Next time you're at the BBC and recording, have a go uh, at okay. it. It enlivens any recording. Yeah, I'll, I'll take your word for it. I know, I know. <laughs> I know. I won't, I won't say it was the drugs. <laughs> <laughs> or oh, the boredom of, oh, God, here we go, another audiobook. <laughs> oh, don't! It's my livelihood. Yeah, most actors. Yeah. I'm the voice of... Um, I get more love on Twitter about that than anything else because I did um, a series about space spiders <laughs> called Children of Time. Right. And it's a really it's a brilliant. It's by Adrian Tchaikovsky, who I think is related to the original Tchaikovsky. Mm. And um, it's about a planet set in the future, sci-fi. It's about a planet where a nanovirus accidentally gets dropped. Humans are trying to terraform the planet and they drop a nanovirus and it accidentally uplifts a race of spiders. So they become terribly intelligent and then they set out to conquer space. And um, the difficult thing about it was you got to know different spiders throughout several generations. Yes. And they were all called, there was two in particular. They were called Bianca and Fabian, I think. They were all names from Shakespeare. And so you had to think of a voice for Bianca and Fabian, but then also you had to think of a voice for the next generation of Bianca and Fabian. <laughs> yeah. So it was um, it was challenging. I, I mainly just did this sort of voice for all of them. <laughs> a bit spidery. Yes. And the first lot of audiobooks I did was um, a series of Icelandic detective novels where I had to be a woman called Gunhilda Gisladotir. Mm. And uh, given that it was the first audiobooks I'd ever done, the number of Icelandic words you had to pronounce was challenging. <laughs> There's a street in Reykjavik called Hapnarpjordr. Good. Repeat after me. Mm. Hapnarpjordr. It's one of those where the F sounds like a P and the D sounds like a D. And that's what you have to say. And the terrible thing is you don't want to sound like you're trying to do an Icelandic accent all the time. No. But then when you come up to words like that, you can't avoid it. So you'd have to say, <laughs> I'd be being Gunhilda, and you'd have to go, so we're going to take you down to the station at... <laughs> it just sounds like suddenly you've had an aneurysm. <laughs> decisions you make early on in a book can plague you, can't they? Definitely. I made a decision that... Uh... It was an AI, so I basically almost nicked the idea from Star Wars, really. So the man was rather quickly spoken, spoke rather well, but he did the whole thing like this. <laughs> That's not derivative at no, all, No, no, I Mike. don't know where I got the idea from. <laughs> anyway, five books in, you're thinking, I hate this bloke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I hadn't. I wish I'd just used my own voice. <laughs> Why That's not? That's much nicer. Idiot. If it's artificial intelligence, surely it can learn to speak properly. Right. So, Mel, it's great to have you on this podcast. We go back a long way, don't we? Which is lovely. Yes, absolutely. I was trying to think, because I feel like you're just one of the people that are just sort of in my hinterland. Mm. And then I thought, oh, no, actually, what? And I look, I, I thought, no, no, I've never done Benidorm. <laughs> I've not sung anything in very high voices. No. Um, but, no, I think it's things like um, Paperback Hell, isn't it? I saw yeah, that you'd that mentioned that Yeah, that was brilliant fun, wasn't it? Yeah. I think that's where we really got to know each other. I think also births, deaths and marriages. That's Oh, yeah, yeah. That was that Dave Schneider radio sitcom. Russell Tovey was in that, wasn't he? And he used to bring his dog. I've got a video of Russell Tovey doing a recording of that, actually. Is that in your, spa in your space capsule? <laughs> Is that in your time capsule? <laughs> it could be. It could be. I love Russell Tovey. <laughs> 
Anyway, there we are. Very funny. Are you all right? Are you comfy and set and happy? I think so. I've just um, finished my coffee. I'm sitting in my obviously fantastic studio. I think I've got all the equipment. I've got the Aston Spirit mic. I've got the Halo isolation shield, (laughs) the Scarlet Focusrite interface, um, recording onto MacBook Pro, and the whole area is carpeted by noise-reducing splodges of catsick. That's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, the area is not cat proof. Okay, lovely. I'm locked and loaded. Locked and loaded, okay. Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> I shall pull the trigger by saying the words What would you like to put into your time capsule, Mel? Ah, uh, item one. Mm. I have it here. Oh. It is a piece of cheese. Yes. And two packets of chocolate buttons. And. These represent my childhood. Right. I brought them physically so that I can hand them to you through the portal <laughs> and you can you can store them in the, the time capsule. Thank you. They represent my childhood because my earliest memory is sitting on a counter in a pub called the Belmont in Belmont Circle mm-hmm. near Stanmore, which was where my grandparents lived. I was sitting on a counter, I think I must have been about two, and I just had this very strong memory of sitting on this counter. I think it was a very long kind of bar area. I mean, it must have been quite a small pub in reality, but obviously in my memory as a child, it's an enormous cavernous uh, banqueting hall. (laughs) And uh, at one end of it, I think there was a a grill that, you know, like when they have um, the grill that opens, the sort of metal grill that opens when they're going to put the food through. Mm. And it was in that little section that I remember sitting on the counter and there was a whole bowl of cheese, lumps of cheese. And I was eating them and the whole room was full of grown-ups and the smell of beer and fun. Mm-hmm. And I remember the, the sense of, of the crack. So not, the you know, the, the, the fun, the, that Irish phrase, the fun. I remember it so clearly. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this, looking back on it again. And I thought, I, I don't think I've ever had so much fun since. Oh. Actually, <laughs> I mean, there are other occasions, other occasions in my childhood where I have similar memories. I think I think I remember a, it must have been a wedding reception where I was sort of running about madly between people's legs, and it was that same thing, you mm. know. Of your your, it's a grown up party, but you're a kid, yes. and you're just sort of streaking about and having the time of your life. And I think, I mean, on that occasion. The fun was interrupted by a man who stuck his cigar in my ear as I was running past. Oh, so the the <laughs> so the memory becomes quite traumatic. Yeah. In fact, was that your grandparents' pub then? No, no. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. No, they uh, they had shares in it. Obviously, no. They <laughs> they they just lived nearby. Did your mum and dad know about this? I wonder, mum and dad, could you look after Mel for the afternoon? Yeah, of course. We'd, yeah, yeah, we'll take her to the pub. No, the reason I was there was because it was while my grandma. We'd, we'd all go round on a Sunday mm. for Sunday lunch. And while my grandma was making the Sunday lunch, slaving away, I would be taken down to the pub uh, by the certainly my granddad yes. and my dad. Hence cheese on the bar. Given cheese on the bar, yeah. I mean, bit of backstory. My grandma was a very assertive woman. Mm. My dad remembered her throwing various domestic objects at him in moments of extremists, a, a loaf of bread, a, a broom, you know, she was, she was feisty. Uh, and in fact, when we used to come back from the pub, I apparently, I'm told this, obviously I don't remember because I was only two, but apparently I would say, uh, I really had a nice time at the pub. And my grandma would say, we don't say pub, we say hotel. <laughs> and apparently I said, 
I've had a very nice time at the hotel pub. (laughs) (laughs) That's always been handed down to me. And my granddad, by contrast, was a very anxious man, very nervous and also very fastidious which a combination I think does go together quite often. He was very dapper. Mm. He was always very well turned out. But and they'd met I think he'd been a gentleman's valet. And he and my grandma had met in service at this big house in Harrow called the Grange. She'd been a chambermaid. He'd been, uh, I think, yeah, I think a valet. My dad and my uncle Noel remembered that he always used to come down the stairs in the morning ready for work. And he was absolutely perfectly turned mm. out you know he had a perfectly starched shirt um he'd always trimmed and waxed his mustache to perfection and he'd come downstairs and they'd be having breakfast getting ready to go to school and they'd hear him sort of oh boy he had this very nervous but very deep voice say goodbye agnes and then he'd leave but one morning they heard him come downstairs as usual and he got halfway down uh, the staircase and they heard this Oh, I heard sort of whispered <laughs> anxious noises and my grandma going, oh, right. And my granddad, oh. and um, my granddad just turned around and walked back up the stairs again. And my dad and my uncle said, mum, what's, what's, what's wrong? What's happened? And my grandma said, oh, it's your father. He shat himself. Oh, <laughs> Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, poor thing. He was very anxious. He was a very anxious man. Whenever we were going round to see them, he would wait at the curtains, at the neck curtains, and go, oh, dear, where are they? Mm. And if you were a bit late, he'd go, oh, you were very late. So that was the kind of man he was. So the going to the pub, was that your grandmother's idea or his? Was that a regular thing that he did on a Sunday morning? I've no idea. I mean, (laughs) presumably... (laughs) Presumably she wanted to get him out of the house. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't sound like the sort of man who went to the pub regularly. No, he doesn't, does he? It was more what you did in those days. I think that's that's gone away a mm. bit, people going to the pub while lunch is cooking. It was, it was a lovely thing. That's another nice thing about the memory, is that feeling of that particular sort of downtime of, um, you know, you haven't had lunch yet, you've got lunch to look forward mm. to. You're just having a little drink, while well, in my case, a piece of cheese, several pieces of cheese. Mm-hmm. And, anyway, sorry, I haven't moved on to the chocolate buttons. No. Um, I'm just setting the tone um, first. (laughs) So the chocolate buttons is the other half of my childhood, which is the embarrassment of... So my dad became a comedian, and he wasn't always a comedian. He he started out as a printer, what they used to call in those days a monotype caster, Mm. and he worked at Her Majesty's Stationery Office. And he actually had only fallen into that by accident because my grandma had taken him aged 15, to what she thought was the Kodak factory in Harrow for an apprenticeship. And she got there and they said, no, sorry, this is Her Majesty's Stationery Office. (laughs) And she just said, oh, never mind. (laughs) Have him. Work here. Take him off my hands. (laughs) Yeah, he just got handed over there um, because, you know, parents weren't that helicoptery in those days. And, um, And so he was a printer for five years, but then he understandably became a comedian. And so for me as a child, this was, you know, very seductive and glamorous because... At the height of his career in the 70s, he would do cabaret in the West End in the winter and then in the summer he would do a big variety show summer season somewhere like Great Yarmouth, mm-hmm. <laughs> Bournemouth, Sandown Isle of Wight, Swanage, <laughs> Torquay, all these brilliant places. And we would all go out and stay with him mm. 
or we'd go mostly we'd go down and stay with him for the for the whole summer. And again, this is another one of those things of so going out in the evening as a young child, pre-age ten or eleven or twelve or whatever stage you start to get bored with it and no longer be impressed. But going out in the evening in itself is an exciting because we'd go and see his show. Yeah. And going out in ex- itself is exciting, but then you go to this variety show and it's bright lights and music, you know, a live band, mm. and um, and then it's your dad <laughs> <laughs> telling jokes and then singing. He would then sing Ness and Dormer or something at the end of his act. It's very glamorous and, brill- and very exciting, but it was also a liability because they would often have this thing where they would invite kids up on stage uh, and do some audience interaction. Mm. And I think... You know, one of the earlier examples of this, when when my dad was in Panto, he got me up on stage and I, as amongst some little kids. And I think that was, you know, I would always be sort of encouraged mm. to go because mm. I was his daughter. And on that occasion, it was, I, I think it was a sequence in which he would chat to the little children and then have some, have some funny banter with them. And then he would sing Sunrise Sunset from Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, so it was lovely. And <laughs> he apparently, when he got me up, he was interviewing the kids and he said to this little boy, uh, what's your favourite TV programme? And the little boy said, Doctor Who. And then my dad could see that I wanted to say something. So he handed the microphone to me and I said, I don't like Doctor Who. He tickles my tummy. <laughs> which is, I feel very, very embarrassed at the thought that that was what I said. And I was reminded of that again many times by my dad. He would always tell that story because it was deeply embarrassing. God knows what it means. Uh, There was always this liability. And the peak of that came when I was about eight and my dad was in a show with Lionel Blair. Mm. And he had a sequence, which was another of these things where, you know, you get some kids up on stage ostensibly to do this sort of, treacly thing of how lovely they are and then actually surreptitiously humiliate them. Yes. And uh, he got a, a group of girls, group of girls were invited up on stage to do a dance routine with Lionel. Now, the thing is, in my head, the other girls were all about 15 or 16. Mm. Now, probably in reality, they were more like 13 or 14, but it seemed to me that they were 15 or 16. I, I was eight. But anyway, as part of the routine, he got us all to turn around and bend over and wiggle our bottoms. And I can't remember if we did it one by one or all together, but anyway, it became evident that when it got to me, there were just gales of laughter. Mm. And I sort of, yeah, I had my back to the audience. It took a while to realise the laughter was at at me. And I can only think that what was going on, because if you imagine... If you're an older girl who knows a bit more about this sort of wiggling your bottom stuff, Mm. you would bend over, but you'd bend each knee forward to kind of wiggle your hips. Yes. Whereas I think I just bent over and waggled, sort of pivoted and just sort of waved my bottom like a bee doing a bee (laughs) dance or something. And so it created hysteria. And when we got to the end of the routine, we all trailed off and he gave everyone a packet of chocolate buttons. And when he got to me, he said, and I think... I think everyone will agree that we should give Melanie two packets of chocolate buttons <laughs> because she's been so brilliant. <laughs> and I remember his face kind of looming down towards me, covered in makeup and sweat running mm. through all the lines in his face. And it's, it's, it's a, you know, let's be honest, Monk, it's trauma. <laughs> it's, a, it's a traumatic memory. Yes. That this represents. <laughs> it's complex showbiz-related stress disorder that mm. it, it's induced in me because it's... It's led to a, you know, I would say a lifelong syndrome where 
I feel that I will be rewarded for humiliating myself sexually. Doubly rewarded, in fact. Extra rewarded. Yeah. Yes. I get more for being funny whilst trying to be sexy. (laughs) And that's... It's followed me around. It's led me to some very dark places. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. It's mainly left me with a fear of choreography. (laughs) That's understandable. What then made you, having gone through that, I mean, is it the fact that you secretly, you just loved watching your dad do these things and you, you admired that sort of world and it looked exciting? Is that what led you to follow in his path? I'm sure, yes. Because you would think with the trauma of having been pulled up on stage so many times and being used as the butt of the joke, you might have gone, well, I'm not going up there again. Well, I certainly avoided anything to do with wiggling my bottom. (laughs) And I've had to maintain that stance in the face of repeated attempts to make me do it, continue to make me do it in my career. Uh, No, I mean, yeah, I did. I I couldn't. I mean, I think the most long lasting effect was that I I can't, genuinely, I can't learn dance steps. I have a real fear of it. And in fact, I think probably after that, I used to go to, like a lot of little girls, I used to go to ballet classes and dance classes and and I was actually thrown out of the dancing (laughs) classes. (laughs) I remember it was very traumatic also. I remember we had an exam and there was some routine that we were all supposed to have learned to Peter, Peter, Pumpkin Eater or something. And I just remember the feeling of not having a clue. What I, just, I hadn't learnt the routine or something. So I just stood there and did nothing. And afterwards, the teacher called my mum up and said, I think we all realise it'd be better if Melanie left. <laughs> so She's holding us I, all I, back. I've, We've got to cut our losses. Yeah, I've been very hindered, but I did... I mean, I did idolise my dad and I did actually used to write jokes down for him and stuff like that when he was out because he was often, well, he was out all the time Mm. working. So as I got older, I would write down jokes from the two Ronnies for him to tell him, Uh. (laughs) not so that he could steal them, (laughs) but just so that just because I, I, you know, obviously I knew that would please him. So he'd come home from work and wake up the next day, having got back very late. And I'd say, you know, the Queen went on a short informal walkabout today after hitting her thumb with a hammer. (laughs) And it would please him. Yes, to be part of his world, I suppose. (laughs) Yes, it was a liability. (laughs) Again, I was in about what must be year one now. And I had a teacher called Mrs Dunwoody. And my dad used to call her at home between us. My dad used to call her Mrs Double Diamond, (laughs) which was a popular beer brand of the time. And of course, I told her that. My my dad calls you Mrs Double Diamond. And she said, does he really? (laughs) Does he? Yeah, and that didn't go down well. I look forward to parents' evening. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and I had another little friend who, this is terrible, I had another friend who's um, a, g- a good friend at primary school whose mother was German. And I think, you know, again, I must have been about five or six and I went to her house to, to play and it became clear that she was from Germany. I said, oh, I know a joke about Germans. <laughs> she went, yes. And I said, well, knock, knock. She went, who's there? And I went, Gestapo. <laughs> And I made her do the knock, you know, I made her do the knock-knock responses and everything. And she went, Gestapo who? And I went, we are the ones who ask the questions. <laughs> I mean, it must have been terrible and I apologise now. I just remember the extreme offence and embarrassment caused because you, you would hate a kid that did that, wouldn't you? you well, would- I don't know. I suppose if you see that all the time, you see people telling jokes and having fun, you think, well, that's a good way to make friends with people. People like people who tell yes. jokes. And then, you know, watching yes. the two Ronnies. When did you start to realise that what your dad did was unusual? <laughs> or did you? <laughs> I don't know. I just I don't think I've realised that it was unusual yet. <laughs> it's completely normal. <laughs> 
Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember thinking, wow, this is really... Sp-. I think very quickly, you know, the problem with, with that is come 10 or 11, you start to think, oh, no, this is terribly... Emb- this is embarrassing, actually. Mm. You, don't, you don't want to talk about it. And in particular, if your parent isn't famous... You don't want to talk about it because people will go, oh, have we seen him in anything? And you go, no, but he he's worked with Tommy Cooper mm-hmm. and and Morecambe and Wise and he's, he's earned a living all for 30 years. And, you know, people don't really understand that. So they just think, oh, some loser. Yes. He's just <laughs> never been given his own television series. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He had his own radio series, oh, I right. have to say. It was called The Peter Hudson Show and it was on Radio 2. Um, But he had one series of it, Mm. and then they offered him another one, and he'd run out of material Uh, from his act. So they offered him some other writers, and he said he couldn't get on with them because they were university types. Uh, (laughs) We've got a young bloke called Peter Cook who's going to come in and write some jokes for you. No, I don't. They wouldn't have offered... (laughs) I don't know who it was. It'd be interesting to find out. But he described them as university types in long, stripy scarves. Right. and, And he couldn't... He couldn't handle it. So from the mid-70s, if it was around that time, yes. that might have been people like Douglas Adams, right. Clive Anderson. It might have been. Mm. I know. I, I mean, the other thing is recently my dad's manager's son was going through some old stuff and he sent me a photo of the script, front page, oh. from my dad's show, recorded, you know, at the Paris studios. Mm. And two of the technicians were people that I recognised having worked with myself. <laughs> so Martha Knight. Martha Knight and John, John Whitehall. John Whitehall. Wow. Yeah. Oh, the great John Whitehall. Yes. One of the great BBC engineers. Brilliant guy. Well, I love the idea of that sort of comedian, your father, Peter Hudson, doing 35 years of doing yeah. shows all the time, making a very good living. Yeah. But he, I mean, I'm going to blow my dad's trumpet again, mm. really, because what he did that was so great for me as a child and what, what imprinted on me really did have a lasting impact was that, to me, he originated that thing of making people laugh till they were helpless with laughter for the majority of his act and then hitting them with an aria mm. from Puccini and sung it really well. And, I mean, I know that that trope has become degraded, but... As someone else said, you know, that thing of being a crooner, which is sort of establishing a kind of very light format where you tell some patter and then you sing a little bit. But my dad, my dad did both really well. He had trained as an opera singer and so he could make you laugh and laugh and laugh and then really move you with his singing voice. And I think that actually being so good at both those things kind of counted against him because people want you in one category or another. Yes, do we bring him on to sing an aria and, or do we bring him on to tell jokes? Yeah, and the two is too much. But for me, it was, I I mean, I think that's a great, that's everything. To make people laugh and then <sighs> fill them with music. And, and move them with the music. Yes. Lovely. So, yeah, I was, you know, so proud of him, really. Mm. <laughs> but anyway. No, rightly so. <laughs> well done, Mel. <laughs> no, you're right to say it. I mean, we ought to say these things because in a way there'll come a time when there'll be nobody there to say it. Yes, well, that's right. It's certainly a big part of my history. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, I'm going to put a bowl of little cheddar cubes. That's what they were. Thank you. That's what they were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> and also two packets of chocolate buttons and that terrifying image of Lionel Blair with runny makeup. <laughs> Someone should have called social services, really. It was clearly... It was the 70s. Every child was traumatised in the 70s. Yeah. It was how they did things. Yeah. <laughs> OK, lovely. Let's have a look at what you've got for the second item you'd like to put in the time capsule. And it's another packet of chocolate buttons. No, it's not. It's not, it's not another <laughs> Right, I hope you're having fun. This is the point in the podcast where we take the traditional, some would say obligatory, ad break. Parting is such sweet sorrow, like a brain freeze from a really sugary lolly. See you in a minute. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Anyone feel the urge to suck on a mivvy? Well, don't mention it in public. Right, let's find out what else Melanie Hudson wants to put in her time capsule. So here we have, from my archives, this is a note. It says, Wonder Willie dragged his log this way. <laughs> and it's got a cotton bud attached to it. A cotton bud there with a with a piece of blue tack. Mm-hmm. And this represents Well, my I think time it's fairly university. obvious what that represents, Mel. To anyone with a knowledge of basic symbolism. Yeah. It would be obvious. Yeah. Yes. But you better explain yes. it for those people who find it slightly baffling. Okay. <laughs> well, um, the reason I put this in is that in my day at university, in my day, nobody had mobile phones. It's amazing what difference that makes. Not only did we not have mobile phones, but it was the first time you would have been away from home and you didn't have any phone because you didn't have the landline that your parents had. So mm. People couldn't phone you up to arrange anything, so they used to drop round. And if you weren't in, they would leave notes on your door. <laughs> and I've I've kept all the notes. <laughs> I've kept all the notes that people left on my door. And they mostly say things like, where are you? Which is a bit stupid, because by the time you got them, you'd be in. Yes. Um, I'm here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And this one in particular, Wonder Willie dragged his log this way. This, this was from uh, my boyfriend at the time who was, uh, I think it's his way of, he's expressing his physical ardour mm-hmm. for me. So it's, it's an early form of sexting, really, <laughs> to leave this kind of note. And most of them, yes, most of them are from him. There, there's a lot of them. Where are you? 
I called 4.30am, bloody hell, Mel, where are you? Um, Dear Melanie, I've come round here in the pissing rain and I... And then it trails off. Um, so he, he was obviously, I think they were mostly booty calls, really, if I'm honest. But um, the reason why there's this cotton bud attached to it is I've always had a problem with itchy ears. Mm. It's, it's a condition, you know, that it's like, I think it's called, it's itchy skin inside your ear. <laughs> I think it's called otitis media. Okay. People call it swimmer's ear. That wouldn't be relevant in my case. I'm not, I'm not really a swimmer. No. So in my case, it might be yoga ear or something <laughs> but um i used to stick cotton buds in my ears to itch them and it was a bit of a, a, a habit and in fact not once but twice i had to go and see the college nurse as a matter of emergency for help removing a stuck cotton bud from my ear <laughs> and because the, the the end had broke i didn't have the whole cotton bud still stuck in my ear, but the end had broken off and it's like those things where people go to casualty with a snow globe up there or whatever. But in my case, it was a different orifice, and um, it happened. Tw- it happened twice, so I was known for this. And I think that's why my then boyfriend, Wonder Willie, he stuck the little cotton bud on the note. And the other thing about this is that the college nurse at my college was Ronnie Barker's sister. Oh no! Yes, so it was always quite a surreal experience going to see her because she she did look quite like Ronnie Barker in drag. Um, Did she know your dad? <laughs> I didn't ask her. Mm. I didn't. No one liked to mention it because it's one of those things you wouldn't go. You're Ronnie Barker's sister. It was just known. Mm. So, how long were you at Futtock's End? <laughs> three years. Yeah. Just the three years. Just the three the years. Yes. yes. So, Wonder Willie, <laughs> yeah. what happened to him? Well, he was my first serious boyfriend, really, at university. Mm. Yeah, we got together very quickly when I arrived, and then. Uh, and it carried on for a long time. Very serious. But I think, to go back to the notes on the door, I think the reason it's significant to me is it was a great thing that in those days people just dropped round. They just came round. And I think, in my case, they didn't come round all that often. And I always wondered why. But in in retrospect, I think it was probably because I did my best to look really hard and intimidating. Uh. Because in my year between school and university, I, I became a punk. So I, you know transformed the way I looked when I when I went to, I went to Cambridge and um when I went to the interview I obviously was kind of normal looking and nice and studious mm. and looking and then in the rest of the year after I'd sat the exams I spent the time trying to get away from being the swatty nerdy girl that I genuinely square girl that I genuinely was and going to Susie and the Banshees gigs and <laughs> and things like that for the and the damned and things like that for, for for the whole year. So I was I was a goth really. I wasn't a punk. It was a bit late for that. I was a goth, and this confused people, you know, because I, I mean, I wasn't a virgin, but I, <laughs> I was, I was very innocent and square. And in fact, the first day I arrived at Cambridge, I got invited to a girl's room. This girl's room, and she said, "Would you like some grass?" <laughs> and I was like, "What do you mean? What's?" What are we cows? What? And she had this great big overflowing bowl of high quality substance. And then, uh, yes, oh, that's sorry, that's my pelvic floor app <laughs> reminding me to, I need to squeeze. Um, very soon after I'd arrived, there was a knock on my door, and this guy came to the door wearing a donkey jacket. And he introduced himself and he said, Just smoke. And I said, yeah, because I had a cigarette in my hand at the time. I thought that's what he meant. Mm-hmm. And he sat down, proceeded to roll an enormous spliff, 
And I'd never done this before, but I was too embarrassed to say, oh, what's that? Mm. Or not partake. So I did. And I really was in a terrible state. I had a complete whitey, <laughs> that thing, when, feeling when you're going to faint. Mm. And um, I walked out into the quad and uh, I had to go to one of those welcome parties. Um, you meet older students who are supposed to sort of look after you in, a, in an avuncular way. And, and it's a tea party. It was a tea party. And I, I went to this tea party. I wandered in and this chap in a tweed jacket and a stripy shirt, who I think he was related to Lord Denham or someone <laughs> like that, said to me, look at you, you're a disgrace. Look at you. I mean, look at you with your sticky up hair and your makeup and your studded wristbands. You're, you're obviously on drugs. <laughs> and I couldn't speak. I couldn't speak because he was absolutely right. Mm. I was on drugs, but I'd never touched anything like that um, before going there. I'd been to immediately corrupted by uh, Cambridge University. That's Cambridge for you. Yes. And the guy who'd given me the drugs, we went for our 30-year reunion, and he's become something like the head of the Atomic Energy Authority. <laughs> <laughs> That's Cambridge for you. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? So how long did you survive then as a goth? Did you drop it when you sort of started joining with the Footlights? Or did you join the Footlights? I never joined Footlights. Never joined them? I never joined no, no, God, no. No, I had an unerring instinct for spotting the people who were going to be the most successful, <laughs> then being very rude to them. Yeah. I think they look like wankers and stay away. <laughs> Yeah. So, no, I didn't join football. I did do a lot of drama. I acted in things, mm -hmm. but with people who were much cooler than that. There were one or two other gothy people about. David Baddiel had slightly weird hair. Mm -hmm. And there's another bloke who I eventually met who was known as the Peterhouse punk. I met him. We saw each other. He, and I could tell he was a punk. We were, very, we were few and far between. And he introduced himself and he's called Amnon Carr. And I realised that he had been my first, first boyfriend at primary school. Oh. When we were five, we'd known each other. And uh, <laughs> so that seemed strange as well. Well, and you could tell that the punks were few and far between when he was known as the Peterhouse punk. The Peterhouse punk. Yeah, the only one at Peterhouse. Yes. And I was the Queen's punk. <laughs> and I was always very mystified. I felt like I didn't get as much traffic to my door as a lot of other people did, seemed to. Mm. And as I say, I think it was that I was inadvertently putting them off yes. by trying to appear very cool and hard when, in fact, I was just someone who stuck cotton buds in my ears. Yes. I'm slightly worried that, in fact, one of the reasons why people didn't come to your door very often is you weren't in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I was. I was. I worked really hard. I got a first. <laughs> Don't laugh. It's brilliant. <laughs> So, I'm only saying it to illustrate the point that I didn't realise how little work other people were doing. Yes. Mostly living a very, very decadent life. <laughs> and um, Having people knocking on their doors all the time. Yeah. I've got all the things like the party invitations. Like this one says, Uncle Fun and Auntie Work invite you to a berserker party. <laughs> Fuck a friend on Valentine's Day. Dress loose. <laughs> That's the kind of level of it. Well, I'm not surprised you <laughs> stayed in and kept your head down. Well done. Exactly. Well, I'll take that one note with the earbud. We'll put that into the time capsule. Yes, I'll need the cotton bud. Mm -hmm. yeah, I've still got the itchy ears. Taxing for me, having to wear these two sets of earphones. <laughs> to... <laughs> Let's move on then. Yes, OK. Let's move on to the next item. What's number three, Mel? Well, number three is another note 
And this one's written by me. And I came across it when I was clearing out my house uh, to move house mm. a couple of years ago because I had been living in my house 25 years and I was selling it and moving to where, the flat where I am now. It was in a bag of photos and other souvenirs from a trip to New York that I took in December 1988 mm. when I was at drama school. And I went to see uh, my boyfriend who was working, not the same boyfriend, not, not Wonder Willie. It's a different one, mm. Super Willie. And um, <laughs> he, he was working in New York for six months. He was working for a magazine called Tough Puzzles. And so I've got this bag of souvenirs and I found this note and it's, and it says Pan Am pros, home for Christmas, time to earn versus spend less. Cons, £50 more expensive, shorter stay a week. And then underneath it says TWA, pros, back in time for new term, time to earn money, spend less, versus cons, £50 more expensive, shorter stay. <laughs> and then it says LL, pros, £50 cheaper, stay longer. Cons, miss Christmas with the family at home, earn less, potentially spend more. And so those are the three flights that I could have taken mm. on that night in December 1988. And I took the LL one because it was the cheapest. And the Pan Am, the Pan Am one was blown up and went down over Lockerbie. No. Yeah. Oh, my God, Mel. Yes. So it's a very the, – the, the, and, of course, I uh, – I, of course, I, I, know, I remember this very well. You know, I remember the event. But I hadn't realised that it was only when I was packing up my house that I found the note. Mm. And I hadn't kept the note because of its significance, really. I just kept it amongst a load of other things. So like, that, well, there's the boarding pass, the LL boarding pass. Yeah. And there's, um, you know, things like credit card slips and other little moments. I just kept it along with a load of other stuff. Um, so I hadn't realised how my usual ability to overthink things had, in fact, on this one occasion, led to a very, very fortunate outcome. Yes. Saved your life. I mean, imagine, oh God, imagine um, somebody finding that if you'd gone on the other flight. Yes. Finding that note and going, oh, my God, she took that one because it was more expensive, yeah, yeah. but it meant she was home for Christmas. I know. I know. I know. It's it's it's, it's a scary thing. Mm. It's very scary. And, um, I mean, I I... You know, when I arrived in New York, it's a very, very strong memory. At the airport, I remember my boyfriend had told me to take a, a, a bus into Manhattan from from JFK, and and I and it was I needed a Carey bus, and I remember this woman shouting Carey bus to New York City, and thinking, oh my god, I'm in the movies. This is incredible. It's an mm. American person, and got on the coach and went in and had this fantastic view of Manhattan. This kind of postcard silhouetted, lit up, fantastic view coming across the Brooklyn Bridge into Manhattan. So I, I was overwhelmed. Mm. And then I think when I got to Grand Central Station, I sort of panicked and didn't know how to get a taxi and had various attempts <laughs> to get a taxi. And one bloke just not understanding me when I said East 14th Street, which I was where I was going. So he just I just got out. And then I phoned my boyfriend. He came and picked me up. And he said, you know, there's been a a plane blown up coming into JFK from Heathrow. And I said, no, well, see, they're not going to announce that on the plane. No. And 
again, we we didn't have mobiles, so I didn't I didn't know that that had happened. No. And he said, "Yeah, yeah, there's been a bomb." And I said, "Oh, okay," and and thought nothing of it. And it was very late, and I went to bed. And the next morning at about eight a.m., the phone was ringing, and my boyfriend's flatmates said were quite annoyed at being woken up so early. They they said it's for it's for Melanie, and so I came and took the phone, and my dad broke down in tears oh. on the other end of the phone, and had to hand the phone over to my mum because he couldn't cope. So she, my mum spoke to me, and they said that there had been an M Hudson on the plane oh, that man. had, um, yeah, yeah. Well, Canadian girl, and um, and what had happened was my parents hadn't been worried because they knew I'd taken L out, mm. but my friends at drama school, some of them who didn't know what flight I was taking, had taken it upon themselves to ring the emergency number of Pan Am and find out, and they'd been told, yes, we're terribly sorry, there was an M Hudson on the plane, but they'd also gone, oh, hang on, let's let's dig into this deeper, and Pan Am had gone, oh, okay, no, it wasn't your one it wasn't your m hudson it was a different m hudson and so realizing that it wasn't me pan am who must have been having such a terrible terrible time with having to give people terrible news asked if they could phone my parents to reassure them that i was okay so my parents having not been worried Mm -hmm. got a call from pan am saying we just wanted to let you know that your daughter wasn't on that plane so that was when they started to worry Yes, of course. You and then start thinking, why are they even thinking that? Uh, maybe she changed her flight. Yes. And then until they yes, speak exactly. to you, they don't know that for certain, do they? They think maybe she, the other plane was full or something happened or she missed it. That's right. Oh, my God. That's right. Oh, my God. That's Oh, yes. my God. No, I know. I know. It's, and, and I um, I mean, for a, I, I, I always feel quite um, sort of wary talking about it, actually. For a long time, I... I didn't. I felt like it was tempting fate to talk about this thing that had happened, um, particularly when I'm anywhere near getting on a plane, <laughs> because of course, it, you know, it's a story for me, but it it's death for that poor girl mm. and all her family. Mm. And I mean, my dad went. My dad was so. My dad went to church to give thanks. He was not a religious man, but he went into a church to to say thanks mm. because it was okay for me and to you know to pray for this for all the other people on on that that plane yeah and yeah and I had one I had one friend who I was on the phone to him in New York while I was still there and he said oh well god will definitely get you on the way back <laughs> which, which made me feel like oh god. so I've always been a bit nervous talking about it but then actually you know it's a significant moment because it um it genuinely makes me feel grateful mm. for the 30 odd years i i've had since then and in a way going into my time capsule it's a it's a sneaky way of putting all the rest of my life since that moment from 1989 onwards uh in as well because mm. i have had my children i've seen them grow up and I've done all the work I've done, all the funny, funny, stupid jobs I've done. And uh, I've I've kissed Sting. <laughs> I, I met Sting at a party of Rory Bremner's and oh, I've tried to kiss him anyway. He he diverted me away but um, <laughs> and made me kiss his hand because Trudy was there. He but... said, it's the mad aeroplane girl. <laughs> yeah, she'll do anything to get a kiss. She told me this story about... Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, Mel, that is the most extraordinary story. And you're right to look at it and to go, what a gift I've been given. Yes, that's how it feels, definitely. Mm. And when I got back, I've also still got the little sign he'd made, my dad had made, that says Melanie Hudson, it has got a star on it. <laughs> He's drawn a star and it says Melanie Hudson, New York via Edgware. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'm going to put that in there very safely into the time capsule. It's a great thing to have in there. Life is like that. Life is just toss a coin. It is. And you try so hard to control it. And when I look at that note, I think, do you know, I tried to do all this thinking through and writing down of pros and cons. And actually, I probably just made the decision on instinct. I mean, I'm, I basically went for the cheapest flight. Mm. So that was just one factor. But no matter how much thinking through you try to do it, it actually, the other half of life is just down to luck and what happens. Mm. And just... You can't control. You can't control stuff. No. No. So, But you try. You try. There we are. That's three things we've got in there. Three things, yep. So we've got two more to go. One good, one bad. <laughs> okay. So the fourth thing is a film that I've just made. I've just made it in the last year. Wow, brilliant. Yes, it's kind of my lockdown project, really. And it's a short film. I've written and produced it myself. And I, I got a friend to direct it for me. This is my most recent artistic project, and so I feel like if anyone's going to... I mean, if I don't put it in the time capsule, no one else is going to, uh, because it hasn't really found an audience yet. You know, I mean, it's it's on my Facebook page, and it, it's on Vimeo, but I haven't worked out what to do with it. But it's called Apex, and it's set on and around a big roundabout in North London called Apex Corner, which is where I grew up and where my mum still lives. I don't know if you know it. Yes, I do, yeah. If you've driven around London, eventually you'll come to Apex Corner. You will. It's the gateway to the north. Yes. It's at the junction of the A1, the A41, the M1, a big railway line. And yeah, and when I was growing up, you know, you couldn't go anywhere. Well, you still can't go anywhere. You'd come out of my house and you'd then be on the A41. You wouldn't be able to go anywhere without going around Apex Corner. Mm. And anyway, this film is um, was inspired by a recent occasion where I was taking my mum to do her shopping and my mum has Alzheimer's. Um, she's she's living with Alzheimer's. She's not too bad. She lives on her own. She has some carers come in. The main thing is her memory, but she she that's, that's the situation. And my sister and I take it in turns to do her shopping for her. And pre-pandemic, we would take her with us for the nice outing to the shops. Um, and, and I think and the film is really about an incident that happened, which is, is illustrative of my incredible stress and rage when I'm trying to do things with her. I suppose to explain it, she lives in North London, I live in Crystal Palace. So it was a long drive mm. to get to her in the first place. That and the and the stress of... Taking an elderly person somewhere means you have to be very, very slow in a world which is encouraging you to go very, very fast mm. all the time. So all the things like paying for the parking meter and not running out, and it, it's all just so stressful. And it means that I'm really full of rage all the time. And so basically, the incident that the film is about involved a van driver. And if you're if you're trying to go around Apex Corner from the Watford direction to the Mill Hill direction, there are three sets of traffic lights going around the roundabout. You have to start out in the right-hand lane. Then by the second set of traffic lights, you have to be in the middle lane. And by the third set of traffic lights, you have to be in the left-hand lane. Mm. And I think I just didn't do that on this occasion. But, but nobody does. You know, it's like 
you know, the tree on for whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, in, it's, it's just nobody does. But this van driver hooted at me, and I think it was initially because I didn't pull away from the lights fast enough at the first lights. But then he started staring at me from his van, just sort of staring really aggressively. And I completely lost it with him. I just started shouting and swearing across my mum sitting in the passenger seat, going, oh, fuck off, fuck you, fuck off. <laughs> and... um all whilst failing to open the right window because I <laughs> different windows opening because it was my mum's car that I was driving. I was shouting at him things like, I don't know what you're saying, this is my mum's car. There <laughs> <laughs> so stupid things like that. It was terrible at the time, but when I got home, I just thought it just seemed funny. There was something funny about it. In fact, it had then continued in that we'd gone to Marks and Spencer Car Park in Mill Hill and I'd been about to pull into a parking space. I was about to pull into the right-hand one of two empty spaces. And I said to my mum, I'm going to pull into the right-hand edge of this space so that there's room for you to get out your side. Mm. And then as I was about to do that, I looked round and there was another car on my side and another elderly lady passenger <laughs> sitting in the passenger seat. <laughs> and I thought, if I pull into the right-hand edge of this space that old lady won't have room to get out on her side. So I tried to sort of communicate this to the woman, the other woman in the car. We had a quite a nice, pleasant little conversation of miming and that what we'd both do. And I, we both sort of parked and reparked several times right. in order to allow our old ladies out. And I, again, I thought this is quite interesting, really, in that there's all these women my age taking their elderly mothers out shopping and dealing with it and, and having similar experiences. So I decided to make a film about it. And I got a very good friend of mine who's a director to, to shoot it. She's called Vanola Garrity, and she made a really brilliant film called Come On Eileen. She's very nervous about the filming circumstances because it's a roundabout, a big roundabout, and we decided to film it there. And I got a friend, a lovely actor called Phil Wright, to play the van driver. So we had, you know, we had to drive round and round Apex Corner quite a lot of times to try and both line up at the same set of traffic lights at such an angle that we could shout at one another. And with my actual mum playing herself, at one point my friend said to me, you couldn't have made this any more difficult. (laughs) Did anybody else come along and say, excuse me, don't use that sort of language to that woman. How dare you? Yes, not so much at the roundabout. But then, yes, there's another scene later on in the car, in Mark Spencer car park and people did stop and go, are you all right? (laughs) But then the good thing about the film was having my mum in it because I discovered that she's a brilliant actress. Really? Yes, she's nearly 85. So obviously the big question was her memory, but we gave her little lines to say. I mostly gave her lines to say that were the sort of things she would say anyway. Mm -hmm. The scene with the argument with the van driver, he had to say, I'm sorry, madam, is this your daughter? And she has to say, yeah, she is. And then he says, is she always this rude? And my mum has to say, yes, she can be quite rude, actually. And my mum, we went for the take and we've gone, this is a line. Yeah, she she can be quite rude, actually. And Phil said, sorry, madam, is this your daughter? And my mum went, yes, she can be quite rude, actually. (laughs) So it's like, okay, no good, that's good. You've said the line. Yep, just another take, but just delay it, just delay it. (laughs) And then after a while, we discovered that after she'd said the one line that she had to remember in any given scene, she would then forget that what she was doing wasn't real and she would basically react completely naturally and essentially improvise her way through the rest of the scene. So she was a perfect actress, Yes, in fact. Yes. Because you can remember the lines, but be completely real. Very much what you ought to do when you're acting. Forget that you're acting. Yes. She's coping rather well, I think. She copes amazingly. You know, we, we really muddle through and we and we do laugh. We, we laugh about it. Mm. 
We were going somewhere in the car recently and I had my kids in the back. So she said, I still remember my the registration number of my dad's car from 75 years ago. <laughs> and I we was like, oh, wow, yeah. And then there was a sort of pause and I thought, oh, I can feel that I'm going to say this. And I went, so I went, what was it then? And she went, I don't remember. <laughs> and we, we all laughed. We all laughed. And, and she laughed too. Yes. And, that you know, that was okay. We were laughing at her, but also with her. As long as they enjoy it as well, I don't feel that you're laughing at them. Or in fact, they probably just enjoy the fact that people are happy. That's right. Well, the technical description is that she has no orientation according to time and no orientation according to place. Mm. So it's a strange way of living. But as I say, we muddle through and she does really well. So where can we see (laughs) Apex? Yeah. So, I mean, we've just finished editing it pretty much. And as I say, I'm going to put it on my Vimeo account. And I, and, but I'm also going to um, talk to people about putting it into short film festivals or mm. something like that. Yeah, great. We'll also put a link to it with this episode. Great. Starring Margaret Hudson, who's my mum. Fantastic. So um, that's in. So now we have to find something you want to put in there because you want to get rid of it. Okay. So um, has anyone put self-tapes in? <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, I kind of wish I'd gone for that because I've had some corkers. And, I mean, all actors can identify, really, with the hell of the self-tape and having to be your own, not only performer and makeup department and and costume department, as you normally are, but also now the director, producer, (laughs) technician of every, every department. And some of the things you get asked to do, I think the first one I had to do during the pandemic was for a supermarket at Christmas. And I had to recreate that scene in... The one where it goes, what a feeling. And she's on a chair. Flash dance. That's right, flash dance. Mm. And it's an iconic scene. They wanted it recreated for an advert, but instead of <laughs> pulling the chain and the water falling down, you, you pull the chain and a load of mince pies fell <laughs> fell on you because it was a Christmas advert. And I'm like, what? I, no, no, I can't do this. On your own. I don't have a CGI <laughs> department and I... I no, it's the, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I, I can't really, and it involves dancing. I don't care how many packets of chocolate buttons you give me. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. So um, I decided not to put self-tapes in because that would be the end of my career. <laughs> so I'm putting in the major works department of council. Fair enough. Thanks. And that's because I'm having a really difficult time with them. I could put in the whole concept of leasehold because I'm a leaseholder Mm. and my flat, they are the landlords, so they own the exterior. Council are the freeholder. And what this means, it turns out, they have a contract with a big building firm who are a contractor and every few years they come round and do what they call major works. Mm -hmm. And basically this involves putting up a scaffolding and they tinker about a bit and (laughs) do a bit of repainting, a bit of repointing, And then they go away and they charge you 10 grand Mm. for it. And they do this every few years. And I wasn't aware of this. And when I bought the flat, we had tried to ask whether there was any works upcoming, but we didn't get any replies. And the people who were selling it to me said, oh, oh, they only came around a few years ago, actually, and did some major works. That was 2017. So probably won't need to do anything for a while. So I, I waived all those inquiries. I bought the flat and then... Shortly after I'd moved in, I got a notification, a Section 20 notice, saying we'll be coming soon to do the four-yearly major works, a.k.a. tinkering about and charging you 10 grand. Mm. And it's extremely annoying. And they do a consultation, which means that they tell you 
what they're going to do and you just have to listen. Take, so it's not really a consultation. Whatever you say, if you say, which I said, that, that my level doesn't need repainting because the people who owned it before me have repainted it themselves, so you don't need to put scaffolding up, they just go, no, sorry, we do. We do need to put scaffolding up. And you go, well, why? And they go, well, the roof might need some work. Mm. And I said, no, your survey says the roof looks in reasonable condition. And then they go, well, there might be asbestos up there. And you go, no, I no, you survey for asbestos every time. If you find that it's not there, why are you going to come back and survey again? Did you stash some there the, on your previous visits? Yeah. And then they come around four years later and resurvey their own work and go, well, this needs doing. <laughs> I mean, Kafkaesque isn't the word. It's, oh, it's awful. I'm sure I've handled it all completely wrongly. And in fact, I'm really worried now that when they come to do the work, as they inevitably will, I will be targeted for more work. My bill will be 20 grand rather than 10 grand. Yeah. Most people have said that this is outrageous. In fact, the local councillors have said it's outrageous, but they can't... Sit. No one can seem to do anything about it. It's just like a juggernaut that keeps going, comes towards That's you. That's a contract they signed some time ago. It is, yes. It's called... Uh, oh, there's a name for the type of contract it's called. Rip-off? Um, <laughs> Waste of public money? <laughs> oh, Mel, I hope this gets sorted out for you, but I will do my best to bury it. Thank you. And then you won't have to worry about it. Oh, what a relief. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Melanie Hudson. If you enjoyed listening to me and Mel chatting, then perhaps you'd like to hear more episodes with other fascinating and entertaining people, in which case I'd suggest you subscribe to Off Menu with James A. Caster and Ed Gamble. Or you could subscribe to My Time Capsule. There's an idea. You'll be able to listen to all past episodes and we'll get all new episodes as they're released. And if you follow me and My Time Capsule on Twitter, I'm at Fenton Stevens and My Time Capsule is at MyTCPod. And it's a similar handle, as the young people say, for Instagram and Facebook. Or you could just search our names. Anyway, if you follow us, you'll be able to see who we've got coming up and what we're up to. And you can contact us anytime. The theme tune by Pass the Peas Music is available on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, don't forget we've got our second birthday coming up soon, with me finding out what our listeners would like to put in their time capsules. So that'll be fun, I hope. Try to stay safe till then. If you're driving home, here's some traffic news for anyone on the M11. Uh, Apparently a lorry full of glue has shed its load. Yeah, the police are saying there's a joke coming up. Oh, no, sorry, they're saying that most drivers are sticking to the inside lane. Glue lorry, you see. Oh, come on, what do you want, blood? Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.